Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Bill Bishop. Bill, how you doing? Hello. I always <laughs> wanted to say it like you. I'm good, thanks. How are you? And I hope everyone's doing well. I'm doing well. You know, somehow it's February all of a sudden. Welcome to February, first episode of the month. So we're going to be public this week. Let's uh, try to avoid getting canceled. Oh, like, that's right. Be on your P's and Q's here. And uh, as usual, you can subscribe to Cynicism for full access to all the shows we do or subscribe to the Stratechery Bundle. We'd love to have you on board. But yes, um, it the sun is shining, which is all I can really ask for. We had a very gray January here in D.C., so I feel like that this is a good omen for what's to come in February. I hope so. It is beautiful out. Hard, yes. to, hard to be inside doing a podcast looking out the window, I gotta say. <laughs> yeah, well, Tashi, don't worry. Uh, just an hour, hour or so wait, and then we could get rolling, or you can get out to the park. I'm now communicating directly with your dog here on the podcast. <laughs> um, we'll begin today with a headline from Nikkei Asia. Hong Kong unveils new security law in further repeal of liberties. And I'll read from Nikkei. The Hong Kong government on Tuesday unveiled details of its new security law that will close, quote, loopholes, end quote, not covered by existing legislation, providing another tool for authorities to further curtail civil liberties. The new legislation would cover treason, insurrection, theft of state secrets, sabotage against public infrastructure, including computer systems, and external interference in domestic affairs. The consultation paper also suggests that certain provisions would be subject to extraterritorial applications. Patrick Poon, a visiting researcher at the University of Tokyo and expert on human rights, said the proposed legislation for the five crimes is broadly defined and captures, quote, all kinds of activities, end quote, including engagement with foreign entities about Hong Kong politics. Quote, theft of state secrets is similar to the mainland charge of leaking state secrets to foreign entities, Poon added, noting the charges that were filed against human rights activist Huang Qi in mainland China after he exposed local corruption. So, Bill, the reason I wanted to start here is because I realized recently that in the entire time you and I have been podcasting, I've never really asked you about the state of affairs in Hong Kong. So, to start, this national security law was originally proposed in 2003, but do we have any sense as to why it's being passed now and what it might mean? Well, so it's uh, this Article 23. It's an article in the basic law um, that it was supposed to have been passed, and they first tried it in 2003, about mm-hmm. six years six years after the handover from the UK to, to the PRC. Uh, there were mass protests. They shelved it. Um, and then they just sort of never really pushed it again. And then, of course, after the protests uh, four years ago and then the national security law uh, that was passed in Hong Kong, uh, they, it was clear this this was the next thing that was coming. They were saying that the, the, the local Hong Kong leaders were saying it was coming last year. They said it would be this year. Uh, and it's, it's basically to fill in any possible remaining gaps around national security and national security laws. And this time there won't be any protests. Uh, yeah. Because you know they, they've made it extremely risky for anyone to anyone to protest anything um, or, or or say anything that looks like you're going to protest in Hong Kong. Um, so again, it's just it's just part of the further, uh, like I said, it's sort of filling out some of the blanks in the national security approach in Hong Kong, which again is really just 
it's another PRC city. You know, mm-hmm. it, 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 this idea, the sort of one country, two systems after the protests of 2019, the national security law uh, was pretty clear that that was not really in operation. Uh, and, and it's just been further eroded since then. This is a really, again, I just think is a reminder that, a little, I mean, it's, it's just a reminder of what Hong Kong really is. It's, an, it's a mainland city. Now, from a business perspective, you know, there's been this idea or this reality that Hong Kong was different and you could operate your businesses differently, a different, different, uh, more freedoms in Hong Kong, better access to information. Uh, this Article 23 is another step towards, I think, forcing businesses to really question whether or not those things will remain true and operative going forward. Yeah. The Hong Kong government, of course, will say, yes, it's not a problem. As long as you don't break this law that, you know, as long as you don't violate Article 23, then you're fine. The problem is how expansive some of these definitions may or may not be. I mean, one thing, back to the point of how this is converging with the mainland, I mean, they say very specifically at the beginning of the document, they talk about the national security law of the PRC, and they say how the same set of national security standards should apply throughout the country. They're harmonizing it with the mainland in terms of the a holistic, the approach to holistic national security is what they call it, which is basically pretty much everything is national security if you want to be take a more like if you're on the national security side and you want to take a more expansive or aggressive definition, it just basically means almost like whatever you say is national security is national security. So it's quite chilling. It's not a surprise. It is though, again, like I said, for businesses, especially foreign businesses operating there, uh, it's going to lead to a new round of questions about how viable it is to keep, you know, to run their businesses out of Hong Kong, especially if they're in businesses related to information and data. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the convergence with the mainland. According to the Hong Kong Democracy Council, there have been more than 1,700 political prisoners arrested since 2019. And I know that Beijing has cracked down on the freedom of journalists and curtailed judicial independence. So the news this week is consistent with all those trends. But reading about the security laws, I was struck by how similar it is to what we've talked about in mainland China, where the the terms are so broad the scope of this law is kind of mind-boggling it, and it can sort of mean whatever the state wants it to mean and so well, that's the compliance point. That's a, that's, then becomes pretty terrifying right right well you're you with your legal background you under i mean you get it right that and but that's the point it's the feature not not a bug of of making it those sort of definitions so expansive and um you know there's there's also the 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 bit about sort of Foreign interference, you know, there's a trial underway right now of Jimmy Lai, the former publisher of, of um, an owner of Apple Daily. One of the charges is that he was reaching out to foreign politicians, foreign media, mm-hmm. uh, foreign hostile foreign actors to undermine Hong Kong. Uh, you know, this is all part of the general pattern of what's going on. Yeah, and, including you know, the, the attempt to apply it extraterritorially, which is kind of crazy to me. I mean, that's why, you know, there are I think there are now 10 people from Hong Kong who have bounties on them, who've left the, who've left the territory, who now have sort of global bounties on them. Um, and so it, it, it just it just again, it, it should it's not a surprise that they are pushing this through. I, I will guess that there's a 30 day consultation period. Uh, would be surprised if they make any material changes based on public feedback. I'd be surprised if there's any real negative public feedback right. that gets submitted. <laughs> um, and then I would guess that it'll be put in. It'll it'll be it become it'll be, be passed before or around July 1st, which is the anniversary. It'll be the 27th anniversary of the handover. Um, they seem to like to do like to do these things around that handover anniversary date. 
Um, and so, you know, I mean, from the Hong Kong perspective, from the Hong Kong government, the Beijing government perspective, you know, Xinhua covered this when they when it was announced, I think it was Tuesday. And, um, you know, they quote the, the chief executive, John Lee, the chief, chief executive of Hong Kong talking about it. And, and he says, you know, he talks about how, you know, there was a Hong Kong version of a color revolution in 2019 and you know, how they described the, right. the protests. Right. And so this all just feeds into, again, the mainland's reasons for for its national security law and the whole, you know, the fears of color revolution and foreign infiltration and foreign interference. And so it, it just is 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 sort of the logical progression for how the mainland is managing Hong Kong and, and where things are headed. Aside from where things are headed, I'm also curious about where things were. So just as I take advantage of you on the podcast here and just ask you questions I'm curious about, when you were living in Beijing, what were some of the biggest differences between Hong Kong and the mainland before we saw this con- convergence? Um, Hong Kong was was really outside of, for the most part, outside of PRC law. You know, you had uh, freedom of the press, freedom of publication. You had uh, uh, just you know, mainlanders would feel comfortable putting assets in Hong Kong or getting Hong Kong identity and feeling like that gave them some legal protection and some protection of their assets. You know, that's changed over the last several years. It's why there's so many, um, so many mainlanders are going to other countries, especially Singapore, leaving Hong Kong and putting mm-hmm. their money in Singapore because, because of the realization that actually you're not beyond the reach of Beijing if you're in Hong Kong. Um, you know, there used to be, a, I mean, it was fun, you know, for folks watching interested in you know Chinese politics and all the great wonderful gossip you know Hong Kong used to have all these great bookstores where you could in magazines and where you could get all sorts of salacious gossip and some of it was true um, those are all gone you know there was a several years ago there's a case there's uh, Hong Kong booksellers who were um, arrested I think not even Hong Kong but other countries taken back to China one way I think wow. was publishing a book publishing a book about Xi Jinping and his like alleged mistresses. Um, and so they, they crushed that a long time ago. It, it's just a, um, you know, they still want to, you know, it's, it's got a convertible currency, you know, it's much more connected to the global financial markets. Mm-hmm. That is still there. It has a different legal system. Um, although I think, you know, in the case, things like the Jimmy Lai trial and some of the other trials, there are increasing concerns that the legal independence has been eroded, is in the process of being eroded. Right. I've read a lot of people describe the Jimmy Lai trial as essentially a show trial. Well, I mean, you've already got officials saying he's guilty. Yeah. Um, you know, you've already got uh, senior people in Beijing saying, you know, he's guilty. He did all this stuff. I mean, there is no question, I think, what the verdict's going to be. Uh, and he's in his 70s. He's, I don't be surprised if he doesn't spend the rest of his life in jail. Yeah. And, he, and, and, he's, he, a UK, and he's a UK citizen. And for anybody um, who's not familiar, he was the owner and publisher of a pro-democracy outlet, correct? And, and he, well, I mean, ne- just a just a, a, a big newspaper, Apple Daily, that was you know not a fan of the Communist Party. Ultimately, was supportive of the demonstrations in 2019. Uh, and you know, I think most people in Hong Kong were pro-democracy, right? I mean, it was or or at least pro not being part of the Communist, you know, run by the Communist Party, right? Um, but ultimately, that because it's Hong Kong is the territory of the PRC. Ultimately, the Communist Party was going to take control and has taken control. And so, Lai is now being charged with fraud and well, fraud and you know working with foreigners and all. I mean, he's just he's he's gonna he's not coming out of jail. It, yeah, it, it's pretty clear. I mean, and you know, it it, it is one of those. Um, he's got he made a lot of friends in the West. Uh, he has a lot of supporters, a lot of political support. He is a UK citizen, as I said. 
doesn't matter. You know, he's, he, it's nothing. They don't, you know, they need to make a point. I think from Beijing's perspective, they need to make a point. Um, And I think also what we're seeing with the the national security law and now this article 23 is the local Hong Kong officials, they have to prove their loyalty. They have to prove that they are good cadres. And so there, I think there's a real risk of overzealous implementation. You know, I think we've seen that. I think we'll see that going forward to make sure that they are proving their loyalty to Beijing. Yeah, it's all a tragic reflection of the state of affairs in Hong Kong and and just with Xi more generally. And the lie trial, I mean, it's sort of a microcosm. There's nothing Westerners can do to intervene on his behalf or on Hong Kong's behalf. Um, no, the, I mean, the, there's there's lots of rhetorical, you know, governments put out statements, people write up ads, people say this is bad. You know, the U.S. government, other governments, they're not they're not willing to do anything material. You know, they're not willing to put any real significant sanctions on Hong Kong. You know, and even if they did, it probably wouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't change the outlook. And so um, but you'll you'll see lots of protests. But I think, you know, Beijing is confident they could just ignore the, you know, the rhetorical protests. Well, and Hong Kong is still a hub of international finance. Right. How much has that changed in the years since 2019? I mean, obviously, as this crackdown continues, I, I can envision foreign investors becoming more and more uncomfortable with it. But how much have they already been made uncomfortable and started to sort of withdraw from that market? Well, I think you're seeing a, you're seeing a lot of withdrawals. You're seeing a lot of, you know, like especially the financial side, funds moving out of Hong Kong. You know, the Hong Kong market is down a lot. It, it, you know, it, it, there are lots of reasons, but um, I, I will bet that one of the reasons is just the general, you know, a little bit starting to lose confidence that this is really any sort of an independent place or an independent market. Um, you've got like the Jimmy Lai trial again. You know, the protests, you know, foreign government protests aren't going to change the outcome, but I think. The process is also one of those things that just corrodes faith in independence of the judiciary in, in, in Hong Kong, um, corrodes the ability to argue that you'll get a fair shake or a fair hearing if you have a problem, if you're a foreigner or a foreign company. Um, you're seeing, I think the Financial Times had a piece a couple of weeks ago where talking about, I think it was Deloitte. Um, you know, they now have they now tell their employees when they travel to Hong Kong to like take burner devices, the same kind of uh, advisory guidance, they give yeah. people guidance traveling to to the PRC uh, to the mainland. Uh, I'm not it might be Deloitte. We'll have to check. So don't, I, I, I might have gotten that wrong. But it was it's just interesting how and but it's also a reflection of I think if you're you know a big corporation, you have legal department, compliance department, you know, you can't with a straight face argue that Hong Kong is truly separate and less risky place than the mainland is now. It's just, right. they, they've made it that much harder. And that ultimately, whether, you know, I don't think, I don't think it's like it falls off a cliff in terms of confidence or investment or business activity, but ultimately, sort of, I think like what we're seeing with the mainland, it just, it's corrosive. And so people then think, and companies think, well, maybe we won't, maybe we'll keep what we have, but we'll, new investments will go somewhere else, or we'll keep a smaller presence and get rid of some operations, some people, business will expand elsewhere because Hong Kong used to be very, very separate from China. Now, again, it just, it's just losing that uniqueness. Yeah, no, I, and I had friends who lived over there with family and after 2019, they were expats working in Hong Kong and they just, it was not tenable to stay in Hong Kong um, in the wake of all that. And obviously COVID played a role in, in some of 
the changes we saw. But to what extent does it hurt China to have that happen? And does she care about any of that? Well, I think they don't. I mean, the Hong Kong government is, you know, COVID also and their COVID policies hurt confidence and drove out a lot of, you know, not just expats, but um, drove away a fair number of people that they have embarked on this campaign to sort of, you know, a global campaign to burnish Hong Kong's image as this business friendly place and, you know, great for great for visiting, great for tourism. Um, I think that whether or not she cares, I mean, the thing that the party, you know, I think she cares the most about is making sure that. Hong Kong is not a beachhead for color revolution for the mainland, which Mm -hmm. I I really think inside the system is how they saw what was happening in 2019 was if Hong Kong falls, then um, that could easily spread into the mainland. Um, And so political security is always, always paramount, paramount. Um, And so as long, you know, Hong Kong is now, as I say, it's, it's, you know, it's ruled by patriots. That's what they wanted it to be. Um, They've changed the election rules so that the local elections are, you know, only approved candidates can run. So, so it's, it's a democracy, it's elections, but it's elections. You're only going to select, you only get to choose the people the party thinks are the right people. Right. Um, Which is again, what Beijing wants. And I think, you know, you know, one, it's one of the questions though, is do they, do they understand, you know, do they care if, foreign sentiment and and elite business sentiment on the mainland has has been eroded about operating or keeping money in Hong Kong do they really care or do they think that it doesn't really matter mm-hmm. because on the one hand you know it's china we're a big market there're lots of opportunities in the future we believe and so therefore the these people will always come back right because they want to make money um I'm not sure, but I think that, you know, the folks I have, I don't have a lot of patience for the folks who say like, nothing's really changed. It's really the same. Um, It's clearly, it's clearly changing a lot. And, and it just like, I mean, if you're a company that's happy putting a bunch of money in Shanghai or somewhere in mainland China and operating under the rules of, you know, the rules of the road in the mainland China, then you should be fine in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. If you're in Hong Kong, because you think Hong Kong's distinct and separate and you have all sorts of other protections that you don't have the mainland, you probably going to be going through you're probably going to be going through a rethink. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, we run into the same question over and over again, which is, is this a case where China hasn't considered the second and third order consequences of some of the decisions that are being made? Or, you know, she and the party leadership has considered those consequences and disregarded them in the name of prioritizing national security and and, poli- and, and political security. I mean, yeah. again, I, 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 great question. I, I wish I knew. I think in some ways. No, we never know. It's, it's all. You, you, you never know. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, just, you just know what comes out the other side. One question we got from JJ, he says, can you guys discuss the increasing migration of mainland citizens to Hong Kong via the talented people policy? I know nothing about the talented people policy, but do you have any answer there? Uh, just a little bit. I think that, that Hong Kong originally was hoping to get people from around the world. Um, but in, in, in many ways, in fact, I think it's primarily been, um, I forget the exact stats, but it's primarily been uh, mainland citizens who are going to Hong Kong. I mean, if you're a mainland citizen, there are still more freedoms in Hong Kong than in the mainland. The internet is still not blocked, right? Mm-hmm. There, there are, if you have money, medical care is good. You can go to get your kids into really good schools. If you know, there, there are, it's sort of a continuum. And so it's not yet exactly like a Beijing or Shanghai, but the trends are more that way than staying kind of a, a unique sort of window on the world. That's much more in sync with the norms of the world outside China than inside China. 
But but for a lot of people in mainland, it's still a very attractive place. Although I think, you know, and I, I will I will bet over the next few years though that again, folks who can actually leave for Sega Singapore, um, you know, have enough money to be able to have a good life in Singapore and get a visa or get a long-term visa, you're gonna see a lot of more people want that because that ultimately they ultimately have protections. Right. Whereas in Hong Kong, you know, just like if you're in the mainland and you have assets in the mainland, you can't possibly have any sense of security that your assets will be there the next day if you get in trouble. Yeah, well, in Hong Kong, the chief executive John Lee, the the talented people policy for anybody who's curious, we'll put a link in the show notes. The, this is an article: Hong Kong announces plans to trawl the world for talents. And in his first policy address since taking office in July. Lee said the government will set aside 30 billion Hong Kong dollars to attract businesses to the city and launch a so-called top talent pass scheme to entice talents to pursue their careers in Hong Kong. That's after the local workforce shrank by about 140,000 people. Um, so it and that's from 2022. It'll be interesting to monitor the progress, but certainly I, I think it's just a grim reflection of where things stand in Hong Kong right now and also mm -hmm. the vision that she has for the way functional societies should look. Um, and that's a consistent theme we've seen over the past several years. But um, do you have any final thoughts here or should we move to markets? Oh, go ahead. Let's go to markets. Okay, so another happy topic, <laughs> yeah, another just rousing success uh, from Bloomberg. This is an update to our conversation last week. A sell off in Chinese stocks deepened with a key index falling to a five year low and wiping out all the gains that it made last week on optimism over stronger support measures by the authorities. The CSI 300 index of mainland shares slipped 0.9 percent ending the day below its close on January 22nd when authorities pledged more forceful measures to support the market. The benchmark gauge tumbled 6.3% in January, a record sixth straight month of losses, amid fears the authorities are still not doing enough to counter a deteriorating economic outlook and multi-year property crisis. A Hong Kong court's decision this week to liquidate China Evergrande Group and jitters over losses linked to so-called snowball derivatives, as well as structured derivatives in Hong Kong, added to the slump. So, Bill, this dovetails with the news or lack of news regarding a third plenum where the party might devise more concerted actions on the economy. Uh, the January Politburo meeting came and went without any mention of dates for a third plenum. What do you make of the latest developments here? So on the market, we talked about it last week, and I, I wrote about the newsletter a few days ago. You know, the policymakers have been signaling they want a bottom in the market. That you know they want to maybe not pop it back up immediately, but they want the selling to stop, stem the bleeding, yeah, stem the bleeding. And they pushed out a whole bunch of different measures, um, including you know some some state buying as well as some places can't short and blah blah blah. And and, and you know it worked for a few days, and then it's not working now. And I think that's pretty interesting that that you know in some ways you may have folks are selling what they have to the state. So, you know, the state's left holding the bag in terms of these stocks. I think also, you know, we've got what's today, today's Thursday. Uh, so we have six more days of trading before the Lunar New Year holiday, um, where the markets will be off for, for a week. Uh, I, I think the government's really not going to want to have the market going down a Tanking lot more in, into, the, into vacation. the Lunar New Year holiday. <laughs> However, as we're seeing, at least in the short term, what the government wants doesn't necessarily mean 
what the market does. And so uh, at this point, you know, there it's hard to point to any reasons to be constructive and want to start buying Chinese stocks based on the data, based on the um, what, what we can see from the economic policies. Uh, you know, lots of people say it looks cheap, it does look cheap. Hong Kong looks cheap. Cheap doesn't mean it can't get cheaper. I'm not mm-hmm. recommending either way on stocks, but I'm just saying that there continues to be, I think, this, you know, the, 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 the thing that investors need is to see some sort of clearer and more supportive policy roadmap in terms of not only policies, but also some types of stimulus. And I think that the government, though, on the one hand, is saying they want to sell, they want the market to bottom. On the other hand, they're just not pushing out the kind of stimulus that investors seem to be wanting. And so- right. Um, I, I think this is gonna this is just gonna skip along the bottom for best case, probably bounce around here for some time. You know, worst case, the government has a lot of money. You know, that if the Bloomberg report from last week is correct, that SOEs are putting a couple hundred billion US dollars into the market. Um, you know, that's great, but that's not ultimately at some point that money runs out. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to really change things. And you you really can end up in a situation where you just have a bunch of people who are happy to sell to the state funds. Yeah, and and just get out. And so I think there. This is a real. This is actually a pretty. Um, this is this is a problem because you know there it looks bad, and I think they care about how it looks. It's another. It's another thing that people can point to and say, look, there's a lot loss of confidence in policymakers and you know in in what Beijing's doing. Um, but also, you know, they need a functioning capital market, and they've been talking about this for a long time. They need a functioning capital market that allows all these, especially technology firms to be able to raise capital mm-hmm. because they, you know, they're, as they try and restructure the economy, move towards this high quality development, you know, they're pushing on, you know, the, 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 the what they call like the new productive forces, you know, these various high tech sectors, you know, lots of these, you know, the government has set up these funds. They're dumping a whole bunch of money into all sorts of high tech research, especially around semiconductors, but it's, they need also to be able to channel capital more broadly than from government loans and government grants. And so if the capital markets, if the stock markets are broken and they, you know, one of the things they usually do when the markets are going down too much and they want to at least stabilize it is they halt IPOs. Interesting. Um, but if you halt IPOs, cause you know, they think, well, well, there's a certain pool of money and if they're, you know, people want to buy IPOs cause they usually pop. So then the money will go to the IPOs and won't go to the existing stocks. So the rest of the market will go down is the thinking it, Sort of actually think true, but then if they halt IPOs, then a bunch of companies that are maybe you know need this need to raise capital to be able to pursue their research, research and development, they can't raise the capital. You know, and the VC market in, in many ways is not what it used to be. I don't want to say frozen, but it's not what it used to be. So, so they need a functioning capital market that can channel all these savings that individual Chinese people have into these more productive areas, and and that is not going to happen if people just assume that if they put their money in the market, it's going to go down 10, 15, 20% every year. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes sense. And and in terms of investor sentiment, I can't say I'm shocked because even last week when we were talking about the market appearing to stabilize and we're talking about targeted policy steps that they're taking and messaging from leadership to try to bolster investor sentiment. I mean, you and I were qualifying that talk with discussion of the structural issues that remain, the security issues that remain, the waning foreign investment, all these headwinds that have been a factor for the last 12 months. Like They haven't gone away. 
And so at a certain point, it's hard to see without some sort of drastic action or reversal from the government how the trend does actually change in a meaningful, enduring way as we move forward here. Like right now we're in this cycle where there's, you know, one step forward, one step back. It feels like every other day. And that's just where the market has been for a while, except the trend (laughs) is steadily downward, you know? I think everyone, including the top leadership, is really looking forward to the Lunar New Year holiday for, you know, for the Year of the Dragon. This this will be, (laughs) yes, this should be the first uh, Lunar New Year holiday since 2019, since since before the pandemic started, where everyone actually, it's, it's actually a quiet week. Yeah, well, and then in terms of guidance from above, the third plenum, for anybody who's not familiar, this is Bloomberg, the third plenum could offer clues about China's longer term plans to address structural issues facing the economy. Investors will be scouring the final statement for signals of potential policy pivots and future moves to steady the slowing economy. The meeting normally comes in October or November, one year after China's new leadership team is set. So that would have been last October or right. last November. Delaying the meeting to 2024 marks the first time the third plenum has been held in an off-schedule year in over three decades. So we're already deviating from norms here. What do you think? Well, we've talked about this uh, a few times on the podcast. I've written about it, you know, because originally the expectation would be this third plenum would be in the fall. Um, According to the party constitution, they have to hold one plenum a year. They actually held the second plenum earlier in 2023. So they actually didn't need to hold it. Mm-hmm. In in two thousand and twenty three, uh, the expectation, of course, was, and usually the third plenums are about economic policy. Um, and you know, in two thousand and eighteen, the third plenum was actually held in February instead of in the fall, and it was done to uh, push forward on the the change, the, the getting rid of term limits for basically for Xi Jinping. And yeah. then the next the next week was the two sessions, the National People's Congress and the Chinese Pol- People's Political Consultative Congress meetings. Um, so. You know, every month there's a Politburo meeting. Or there is a meeting. Usually, it's publicized, although not every time in the last few years. Um, and then, you know, since basically August, people have been saying, "Okay, maybe this is the Politburo meeting readout where they'll announce the dates for the plenum." Yeah. And so there was a Politburo meeting readout came yesterday, the 31st, and there was nothing about the plenum. There is very little about the economy. It was really all about political. It was about the CGP thought education campaign. It was about the work reports from some top bodies, the top party bodies. It was it's a very political focused meeting from what was given in the readout. You know, these readouts all have at the end a sentence that says the meeting also discussed other matters. Every readout has that. Some people will say that, oh, they talked about this or that or that. Nobody knows. They just mm-hmm. don't tell you. Um, but that language is boilerplate. Um, and so where we end up, you know, I think a couple of things is we don't know why they didn't hold the popular meeting, the third plenum, sorry, in the fall. Right. There is speculation. Oh, you know, they don't have any good ideas. So they didn't hold it. Or there's pressure on seats. They didn't hold it. Or, they, you know, they, we don't know. Mm-hmm. And so every there's. It's rife with speculation. We also don't know that the Politburo meeting or the plenum, sorry, the third plenum would actually have introduced any new policies that would change sentiment. Given what right? we've seen, it would be more surprising if they did introduce any sort of right, drastic because, policy measures. Be, because in the fall and early winter, at the end of at the end of October, you have this central financial uh, work conference, first time in five years, and then in December you have the annual central economic work conference, and those both set set out policy agendas, right. right? For at least the financial work conference is really a longer time horizon because it's really every five years. So this time it was the sixth year, I think. 
um, the, the, the economic work conference is yearly and it really lays out sort of an assessment of where they are in the economy and, and, and sort of high level what to expect and what they're going to be looking at in the next year. Obviously, things can change if problems arise or you have a thing like a pandemic and sort of all your plans get blown up. But given those two big meetings, uh, it, it's really hard to see why suddenly there would be a third plenum that would make this big change from what they've already been telling everybody they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Because that would be uh, that would be even more dysfunctional, and, right? And so, where we are with the plenum, I think you've got you know back to our discussion about the markets and the economy in general. There's this continuous hope for you know they got to become more pragmatic. They have to make these changes. They need more stimulus. They don't seem to think the economy is as bad as a lot of the folks calling for stimulus think it is. They also have been very clear that they're in the middle of this transition of the growth model. And so going back to massive stimulus just doesn't make any sense from what their high-level goals are for how they want to develop the economy. And so I think one of the reasons you see the market, people are just getting exhausted, hoping that there'll be some magical stimulus thing that's going to save us all. And so people are just giving up. Yeah. And I think, though, that that I, I don't see... Then the other thing people are hanging their hats on, or some people are, is, well, maybe the... Premier Lee, it is, it'll be his first work report at the National People's Congress, you know, because last year it was still the late Premier Lee Kachang gave the work report and then he, then he stepped down as Premier Lee Chang took over. So this will be Lee Chang's first sort of National People's Congress where he's running the show, so to speak. So there's this hope that somehow the MPC will then push forward a bunch of big changes and more stimulus and that things will get more pragmatic and more focused on economic growth and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You go back and you look at what they talk about in these work conferences last in October and in December. There's nothing out there that they're saying publicly that would support the belief that they're going to be some sort of big changes in the near future. Yeah. Um, Doesn't mean there won't be, right? Because we can always be surprised. But the arguments for why they, you know, they're going to be maybe these changes at a, if there's a plenum, a third plenum or the NPC really hinge more on, gosh, things are bad. They have to do something versus they're telling us that they're going to do something because they're not telling us they're going to make these big changes. Right. I mean, we've been studying it every week and there's not really any indication that there's that massive stimulus cannon coming. At the same time, you mentioned earlier, they don't need or they didn't need to hold the third plenum last year because they had the plenum earlier in the year. That's true, but I can also imagine being an investor looking around at the economy continuing to flounder and all of these headwinds. Oh yeah, thinking to yeah, myself, yeah, no, it, you really do need to hold it, a third plenum. It's, it's more, but but it's more opacity, uncertainty, um, and and again, you know, it's possible that there will be a third plenum. You know, in two thousand eighteen, they didn't announce the third plenum until late February, and then they held it like two days later, I think, or one day later. They could do the same thing this time. And then they roll right into the National People's Congress. I think the NPC starts on the 5th of March this year. The CPPCC, I think, is the 4th of March. Um, it's, it's possible. But again, it's one of those things where it's important that they hold it. It'll be interesting when they, when they hold it. We'll learn lots of things. You know, it'll, be, it'll be worth parsing through. And they are meaningful. But you, know, you look at, like today, there's a PMI out that's better than expected. So, you know, there's some real estate data that's not as, you know, a little bit better than before. You know, if you take the position that the leadership has said and is following through on their promises where they are have to they have to transform the growth model, you know, and you look at what they're doing around, you know, they're hardening the system. They are prepared to deal with pain and disruptions. They are prepared to grind through lots of problems. 
And ultimately, maybe the once they get through the grinding, things will be much better, but that will be a very painful process. And so I think the problem is, is like the, the, the fast money, the investors, especially the foreign investors, you know, they don't want to be around for the grinding. Right. It, right. And, but the question is, if you're the if you're a PRC policymaker, do you do you suddenly do something short term to sort of pop the market up or do you stick with your plan because you think ultimately your plan is correct? And, and I think at least from Xi Jinping's perspective, it sure looks like they think they've got the right. Uh, they've got the right plan. Yeah. She is. Doesn't mean door they, number doesn't two. mean they do. But it, I think they or she believes they're pre, they're pretty much on the right part on the right path. And even folks in the system who think they're not, I think it's pretty hard to make the case and, and be convincing that they're not until something really bad happens. Yep. Well, one more question before we shift to a variety of U.S.-China topics. Uh, Chris on Twitter tweeted at us, a question for at Sharp China Pod. You've talked a lot about the slumping Chinese real estate market. Slumps don't last forever. So what opportunities do foreigners have to buy into the market while it's at or near the bottom? So I wanted to include this for two reasons. One, I'm genuinely curious about the mechanics of Americans trying to buy property in China and whether that's even possible. And then two, this is very much not an investment advice podcast. We also have to make that disclaimer on Sharp Tech frequently. But I wonder whether the logic of that question still makes sense. Like, would it actually be a good idea to buy into the real estate market at this point or sometime in the near future? Do you have any thoughts? Well, not investment advice. I mean, I think, you know, buying an individual property in in China, uh, it depends on city. You know, I, I bought and sold property in Beijing, um, bought a long time ago. Uh, it was easy as a foreigner to buy property okay. back then. You know, since then, in Beijing and I think most cities, if not all cities, have housing purchase restrictions to sort of cool the market. They put them in in various levels and, and stages over the last 15 years or not, maybe 12, 13 years. And, you know, it became harder for foreigners to buy. You had to have a certain period of residence and proof that you pay taxes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I don't know what the status is for foreigners to buy um, in most cities now. I think I don't think those rules are gone. Um, I'm, I'm not interested. I wouldn't buy um, yeah. myself, wouldn't be buying property. Uh, I think if you really believe that there are opportunities to buy, you know, to, to invest in PRC property, um, uh, you know, if you're going to live there and you want to have a place to live and be there for a long time, go for it. If you want to, if you're more of an investor approach, probably, you know, there are listed firms on, in Hong Kong. There are lots of real estate firms you can look at and see if you want to back up the truck on some of these companies. Because I think they're all looking real cheap. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can I mean, imagine they are welcoming any sort of investment as, at this point. As I said earlier, <laughs> cheap and cheaper are different. Like yep. you can always get cheaper. So <laughs> that would be um, my concern I, I, and my warning to Chris on Twitter. But here. I not not this we do not give investment advice. And um I would I would I just you know, me personally, I've done my thing with Chinese real estate for now and I'm not um you know, also I know some foreigners who still own personally owned property have been trying to get, you know, sell it. It is a more complicated process to sell it than it is to buy it. Ah, um, interesting. And, and, you know, depending on how you bought it, uh, will determine whether or not you get the money out. Okay. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, you end up with um, lots of potential friction and complications uh, buying individual properties as a foreigner that, that you don't have in other markets, in many other markets. Well, you've convinced me. I'm going to hold off on my real estate investments for the time being, but we shall see what the future holds for all of us here. Um, but speaking of which, let's shift gears and talk U.S.-China. We have a couple different topics to, to cover 
First, we got a second question from JJ, the second JJ question on this podcast. How would Taiwan fare if Donald Trump wins the presidential election this fall? So this has been a buzzy topic lately. There was a clip that went viral recently where Trump was asked about whether his administration would defend Taiwan in the event of an invasion by China. And he said, if I answer that question, it'll put me in a very bad negotiating position With that being said, Taiwan did take all of our chip business. And then this week, a spokesman from Beijing was asked about those comments and said, quote, the U.S. will always pursue America first and Taiwan can change from a chess piece to a discarded chess piece at any time. So this seems like it'll be an ongoing story. Do you have any thoughts on the recent conversation there? Yeah, so that Trump clip was from last year. And he actually, if you listen to the whole clip, he, he basically said what a U.S. president would say. Right. You know, strategic ambiguity. That was my reaction to it, honestly. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the bit about the chips, of you know, they also supply a lot of U.S. companies' chips. I mean, it, it is whatever. But, <laughs> well, but that I, was, think- I had two reactions, just yeah. for the record. So number one, I watched it, and it was being quote-tweeted by all these people who were outraged by Trump because right. uh, Biden has been a lot more direct about— right. and it was, it was from last year, and it was edited. It was just one of those things where, again, be careful of getting excited about video clips going around Twitter. We should know that by now, right? right. Well, and we Biden, that. Biden's comments have actually been the departure from American foreign policy, whereas Trump was more consistent, at, at least as far as I understood it. Um, so from a strategic standpoint, I think that even Beijing has no idea how Trump feels or what he would do. And that has some benefits. My other takeaway from the clip, though, was that Trump's characterization of the chip industry and what has happened in that industry is just wrong and bizarre. So um, <laughs> I guess take the good with the bad in that clip. But well, but but and back to your question, I mean, I think, you know, the 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 comment from the um uh, what is it? This guy, Chamihua, I think is his name, uh, the, the PRC official um, about, you know, how how Taiwan can be going from a, a chess piece to a discarded chess piece at any time. You know, I mean, that that is they've been pretty, pretty consistent with that kind of um, sentiment. I think this is it, they'll become even more consistent if, for example, the U.S. Congress can't pass an aid package for Ukraine mm-hmm. um, and it, it'll sort of use it both in official statements and in other ways. They'll sort of push push out messaging about how the U.S. is just fundamentally unreliable. So therefore, you should, you know, come and bra- come join the warm embrace of the motherland. Right. Um, or, it's or only a matter of are, time before you're abandoned right. by so the West. Resistance is, resistance is futile. You'll abandon you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that, you know, and I tweeted uh, uh, today, uh, sort of on top of that Bloomberg story, um, joking, but sort of not. Uh, Taiwan's problem or, or challenge, I should say not problem, challenge in the U.S. is... You know, the Taiwan government, DPP, they've done a very good job of getting people in D.C. very concerned about Taiwan. You know, mm-hmm. Congress, think tank world, uh, media. Um, most Americans, I don't think, care. And so if there really were a crisis, a lot of Americans are like, huh, where? What? Thailand? What? You know, yeah. I mean, don't mean to joke, but I'm, I'm actually being quite serious. And I think that Taiwan, you know, I said on this tweet, I said, you know, it's too bad Taiwan didn't buy a Super Bowl ad. <laughs> you know, yeah. because, you know, basically they need to do a marketing campaign to get more Americans to know what Taiwan is and care. Right. And 
you know, because because if if something bad does happen, it's going to be, you know, a small group of people in D.C. saying, oh, my God, we got to respond. We got to respond. And, and you know, and then most Americans are like, oh, right, another war, you know, over what? It's over there. You can't even find it on a map. And, and I think that is going to be uh, a real vulnerability for Taiwan in the event of some real crisis. OK, so then very important, sharp China question for you as we all get prepped for the Super Bowl. If we're strategizing on behalf of Taiwan here, how can we get Taylor Swift up to speed on the Taiwan Relations Act and the porcupine strategy for maintaining peace in the Taiwan Strait? What do you think? Uh, they should they should just offer her a bunch of money, extra money to come to add a show in Taiwan for her uh, on her <laughs> the international leg of her tour, which I think starts like this week or this weekend. Right. You she's going to be in Tokyo, you know, she's not, yeah, she's not flight. going to Hong Kong. She's not going to <laughs> going to the mainland. But if she suddenly added a stop in, in, in Taiwan, that would be uh, quite a thing. And, and right. honestly, you know, it would sell out. But also the, the Taiwanese government could definitely afford to just write her a big check and <laughs> yeah, say, you know what, come here. Takes. Yeah, whatever it takes. Yeah. I mean, jokes aside, the logic makes sense where you can step back and say Taiwan has been very successful at raising the salience of these issues in D.C., but we've hit the point now where communicating to a broader American audience should be a real priority because the reality is, in many ways, the impact of war in Ukraine is actually more attenuated from the daily lives of Americans than a war in Taiwan would be or a PRC invasion of Taiwan would be, certainly in terms of disruptions to the global economy. But it's not clear how many Americans understand that and how many politicians are going to be able to make that case convincingly yeah. to their constituents well and let's hope we never they never have to make that case because there was there are no winners from that kind of a conflict but my my point is just that i think taiwan you know they have a sort of an awareness and a recognition problem in the u.s they're not you know they have to look beyond dc i do think also that if they and they're not going to I mean, we're sort of joking but and i don't have a political consulting firm on the side where I will place ads for a 30% uh, VIG. <laughs> Although I hear that's a really good business. Uh, but if Apple they were quite well, if they were to start doing video ads, they should also place them on TikTok or at least try because if TikTok would not take their ads, that would be a <laughs> wonderful forcing event and we very clarifying. Oh boy, yes. I would love to hear TikTok's answers. Did, did you see the exchange between Tom Cotton and Shojachu at the congressional hearings this week? Yeah, uh, I, I did watch it. I watched it with uh, with my wife last night. We watched the clip. And, you know, it's just unfortunate. I, I don't think, uh, uh, you know, like Senator Cotton wouldn't ask, you know, a white CEO. I don't think he I think he's had other TikTok representatives who weren't mm -hmm. of Asian descent. And I don't think he asked them if they were Communist Party members. Uh, I think the way the whole way uh, he was asking the questions, the tone he was using, the language he was using, which was really, I mean, you were like a sentence away from sounding like Joe McCarthy. And it's yeah. unfortunate. And, and it is unfortunate because the issues around ByteDance and some of the other issues he was raising around ByteDance's relationship with the Communist Party, with, with Beijing, are legitimate concerns. And they need to be taken seriously. But the way he made it personal and went after the TikTok CEO and sort of the way he talked to him just basically makes it look like it's really just all about some nasty performance as opposed to really focusing on the substance. And it's just unfortunate on a whole bunch of levels. And frankly, at the end of the day, I think it kind of helps TikTok. No, that's exactly right. If you take these issues seriously and care about addressing the concerns surrounding TikTok, 
this undermines the credibility of that mission. And that's why it was so frustrating to watch. And it's it underscores the importance of being precise with the language, precise in describing the actual concerns with TikTok, because watching that hearing, what happened there helps TikTok make the case that, look, anyone who's worried about TikTok and its role as a foreign influence tool is engaging in McCarthyism and racist paranoia and yada, yada, yada. And that's what that clip looked like to everybody who watched it. Right. Because, but, but again, you can't watch that clip and not see echoes of that. Right. But at the same time, and again, that just distracts from the real substantive important issues that are involved in these TikTok questions. And so, you know, I also like, he asked the shows that you at one point, I think he asked them how long you live in Beijing. I think it was like four or five years. Well, you know, I lived there for 10 years. So if I go up on the hill, am I going to get, are you, you and my CCP are you agent? part of the CCP? I mean, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I, have, I have, you know, it's just like, what does that mean? Do you lived in Beijing? I mean, he is working for TikTok. And again, TikTok is owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese company. It is not a Grand Cayman company. And the mm-hmm. Communist Party has significant influence over that company, like they do with any company if they want to have influence. That is the fact. And the problem, like Shoju Chu and the, you know, they, they get asked questions about, TikTok and ByteDance and relationship with the PRC government, the Chinese Communist Party, they don't have a good answer because they can't have a good answer because they can't actually tell the real truth about what's going, like what the relationship is and how that company and how influence can be exerted on that company. That is a real issue. Going after the CEO personally, who is a Singaporean citizen, whose wife is an American citizen, his two kids are American citizens, as he said in the hearing, and the way the Senator Cotton did it, it again, it is not constructive. Yeah. Well, and that's what's frustrating is there are questions that you can ask that Shojichu can't answer. And that in itself speaks volumes. And that's where you should be strategically. Well, yeah, speaking. I mean, he dodged, he wouldn't condemn, you know, the Xinjiang stuff, right? I mean, they always, it's always the, the question. And then obviously he's very well schooled by all the advisors to TikTok page in DC. Um, you know, they, they, they prep you for these hearings. And he clearly, you know, he's earning his salary. I think he gets paid a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. But now we're all talking about the Tom Cotton Exchange when really the focus should be on the issues around TikTok and ByteDance. You know, the Wall Street Journal had an article on Tuesday talking about this Project Texas and actually uh, employees of ByteDance are still accessing data from the U.S. operations that they're continuing to update the algorithm from Beijing and you know, do things in a lot of ways. And not the people of Project Texas in the U.S. aren't sure what's going on. You know, those are the things that people should really be focused on and be really upset about. If you yeah. want to, if if you if you believe that TikTok and its relationship with the Chinese government are a potential problem, then that should be more the focus than really these kind of ad hominem line of questioning that 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 really just is quite distasteful. Well, it is pretty remarkable, and I'm sure you experience it, and I experience it because we now follow this every week. But every month or two, there's a story like that Wall Street Journal story where. It turns out that everything TikTok said it's doing, it's not actually doing, and there's still all sorts of right. holes. And, 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 but then what we end up with is because TikTok has been so good at hiring really skilled lobbyists and you know PR firms in DC, you know, and convincing the various political campaigns that they all need TikTok for the elections, that you all you end up with is these performances on Capitol Hill, but then subsequently nothing happens. And nothing yeah. is going to happen. I, I we've talked about this before on several podcasts, including the one we did with Ben, uh, the joint uh, tech yeah, right, the three way pod, the three way podcast, the, the poly- polyamorous podcast, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. It's, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. back back in um, 
was it November? I think it was November. Is is that you know there's all this like shouting and you know pointing over here and you know basically like rhetorical fist being thrown, but nothing's going to happen and nothing's right. going to happen before the election at the minimum. It just you know it's it just one of those things where it's it's a it's sort of a DC show at this point, and a lot of what we saw yesterday was just one actor, one one scene from that DC show. Yes, and um, not particularly productive if you care about these issues, but I guess. Our government isn't always productive. Um, however, <laughs> sorry, can I add one thing to that? Sorry, just jump in sure. about about DC. So, um, a reporter where he works at the National Review, he tweeted on Monday, I think, that on Monday night, the Club for Growth president David McIntosh is doing an off-the-record briefing tonight in DC on the quote political risk of restricting or banning TikTok with Kellyanne Conway. Oh boy. So, so but Kel- this is Kellyanne, Kellyanne is on the TikTok payroll now. They pay really well. I mean, I don't know. You know, th- again, this is just like everyone sure has decided do. it's too risky to touch, really touch TikTok before the election. Democrats or Republicans, you know, the, it's, they've already the, the Biden side, the Biden campaign, they've already been in the tank for TikTok. Right. Because they're so worried about younger voters. So, mm-hmm. again, this just goes back to we can see these these hearings and this performance and all this you know, screaming and these these lines of questioning. Congress is not going to do anything. Will you be attending the fireside chat with Kellyanne Conway on Monday night? No, I think it was already this week, and and, and no. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I I'm sorry you missed it. Then that's <laughs> really a shame. Um, yeah, well, and and that's the thing is there's so much money involved and the bureaucracy of actually taking action here. It's not even immediately clear what the best path would be right. if the government wanted to take well, action, and so there's just so many different hurdles to actually address any of the underlying concerns. Right. And, and as this person, Jimmy Quinn, who tweeted about this, this off the record thing, he also notes that the club for growth is backed by Jeffrey Yass, who's one of the biggest investors in bike dance, right. Who's given, you know, he's given the club for growth, like $60 million, you know, and he's got, I think his shares in bike dance are, are on paper worth billions and billions of dollars. So, you know, there are, there are very powerful interests in the U.S. who have a lot of money at stake, who have no interest in TikTok getting banned, and Congress is not going to go against these people. Right. They've proven that. They'll talk, and they'll hold these hearings, and they'll throw up their hands, and they'll say mean things, and they'll make it look like they're really angry, and they're going to do something, and nothing happens. Sorry, I'm cynical. I named my name. <laughs> I'm living, you know, what can I say? Well, the key is you and I are laughing and having a good time. So even if it's grim, even if the actual news is a little bleak um, and, and the cynicism is obviously warranted at this point, I'm not holding my breath for any action on TikTok, certainly in 2024. And I'll be shocked if we get it done this decade because TikTok is just so big and powerful and there's so much money involved. But yeah, who can say? Um, continuing down the list here, we also have an update to our discussion last week on the meeting between Wang Yi and Jake Sullivan. I'll read from the White House readout. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met on the 26th and 27th with Foreign Minister Wang Yi in Bangkok to follow up on the Woodside Summit between President Biden and President Xi last November. This meeting was part of the effort to maintain open lines of communication and responsibly manage competition in the relationship as directed by the leaders. Mr. Sullivan stressed that although the United States and China are in competition, both countries need to prevent it from veering into conflict or confrontation. And then Jake Sullivan also gave a speech on Tuesday at the Council on Foreign Relations discussing the state of the U.S.-China relationship, 
We'll link that speech in the show notes. Um, most of what was said by Sullivan in that speech looked pretty boilerplate and consistent with a lot of what we've heard from the Biden administration. Did you have any thoughts on it? Did we learn anything new this week? No, I, I mean, I was in the audience for that. It was the opening speech for this forum I was at yesterday. Um, it was the only on the record public part of it, of that forum. Okay. I, it was really, I don't think it was, there was nothing that seemed particularly newsworthy. It was, it was really kind of a, just a re-articulation of the Biden approach to, um, to China. So no real surprises. And it didn't seem like there was anything noteworthy from the, the Wang Yi meeting, um, except for this potential call with Joe Biden at some yeah, point in I, the next couple of months. I think, I think there was the call and then there was the, you know, this, this fentanyl working group that they had talked about, you know, coming out of the Woodside Summit last November. Uh, they had their first meeting this week in Beijing in, on Tuesday. Um, and, you know, I mean, I will say, you know, Sullivan in his speech and in the q and I mean, he, he did reiterate that they understand they're not doing engagement for engagement's sake. They understand the pitfalls of some of the history. You know, they're trying to have constructive, useful dialogues in areas where they think they can, there, there are overlapping common interests where they can make progress. But they're not just going to go have meetings to have meetings and then not do things because, you know, they're talking was right. what, I, what I heard him say. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that that I think was one of and he, that's, again, not a new message. But I think it's important, you know, as we, we talked about this on the podcast a lot is sort of the, you know, do you, you know, there are some folks who say don't even talk to them. It's crazy. It's all just failed engagement. You know, I think the Biden administration, a lot of the allies, they absolutely are pushing the Biden administration to make sure that they are trying to have discussions with the Chinese side. And that's yeah. what we've been seeing, you know, since the beginning of the damage control for the balloon. Right. Effectively. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and building ties with allies and doing right by allies and deepening partnerships around the world has been a hallmark of the Biden strategy all along. And so it, it is consistent with the approach that they've been taking for the past couple of years. Um, speaking of the Biden administration, I'll read from Asia Financial. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said on Monday, the expanding sales of Chinese electric vehicles in the West were a national security risk for the United States and the European Union. Quote, a sophisticated EV and then an autonomous vehicle is filled with thousands of semiconductors and sensors. It collects a huge amount of information about the driver, the location of the vehicle, the surroundings of the vehicle. Do we want all that data going to Beijing? The Commerce Secretary had earlier noted how Beijing has banned the passage of vehicles made by U.S. EV giant Tesla in certain parts of the country, citing national security concerns. Well, think about that, she said. Do you have any thoughts on those comments, Bill? Uh, she must listen to Star China. <laughs> I think <laughs> since, so. Since we talked a lot about this last week. No, I, I mean, I think I think it, it actually is quite interesting she said that. I think it's a sign that, you know, these EVs, It's there really are the belief that these posts security risks, you know, sort of like a Huawei on wheels kind of thing. Yep. Um, the fact that it's up, you know, the, the Secretary of Commerce is saying that I think is pretty interesting. Um, and I think you'll be hearing more about that. I'm just guessing. I don't know anything. But I'm guessing you'll hear more about that of the U.S. government, though. I think, you know, there aren't really Chinese EVs here because of the existing tariffs. And and I think we mentioned it last time, too, but I, I keep hearing the tariffs are going to go up again to like 40 percent on the Chinese EVs. Mm hmm. And that's leaving aside whether or not Trump gets a second term. If he gets a second term, then, you know, forget about it. Right. Uh, the tariffs are 80% go tariffs. 60 <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. It, it's um, get rid of like PNTR, all sorts of stuff will probably happen. But um, I think this is, an, this is an area, too, where you're going to hear about, hear more from the European side about 
concerns. You know, the countries that are worried about Huawei, I think legitimately will also be worried about these connected Chinese vehicles. And in some ways, focusing more on national security issues as a reason to limit imports of these vehicles is um, probably an easier path in some ways than trying to go through an anti-subsidy investigation and go through the WTO. Um, right. So th- this may end up, and you know, we've talked about this. The Chinese have the Chinese government has hurt itself by the treatment of Tesla because they're telling everybody that this is how they view these things. Yeah. Well, and it is interesting because there are parallel concerns there with the Chinese EVs or or PRC tech products more generally. Where on the one hand there are questions about data collection and data security, and then on the other there are concerns about protecting domestic industries from competing on price with companies that are heavily subsidized by the CCP and then can drive some companies out of business or eat into the profits, at least, of various important and really successful domestic manufacturers. So it's convenient almost. The domestic politics around the, um, I think, a a coming surge in PRC autos, not just EVs, but also, you know, there's a lot of overcapacity for gas-powered cars now in the PRC too. But again, the national security security angle is one that um, clearly we're going to be hearing a lot more about. Yes. Well, I'm just glad that Secretary Raimondo listens to the podcast. Uh, no, I don't. I don't. I, I don't know. I don't know if she does, but I hope so. I hope someone, <laughs> hope someone over there does, or who, who knows? I have not yet to get hate mail from them, so that may. There be you go. <laughs> yeah, that's the ultimate sign yes. that you've got an engaged listener. Um, well, on that note, I, I think we can close it out. I will say though, happy anniversary to all of us. The spy balloon is one year old as of Friday. It brings me back. You know, we're all getting ready for the Super Bowl a year ago. And then lo and behold, the unmanned civilian airship. Do you have any plans to celebrate, Bill? So I think Tosh and I, we're going to go release some red balloons. Oh, great. I love it. (laughs) No, I think we just all, you know, it's hard to believe it's been a year. It's kind of crazy. What a Uh, maddening year. (laughs) Well, and again, I think it I think it it really um it is what it is. It got blown out of proportion, but it also, there's a lot of reasons, logical reasons it did. So let's hope this is the one year anniversary and then we can just stop talking about the balloon. This <laughs> yeah, is it. Well, We've we're said never going to stop. This is the last time we can we talk about the balloon. <laughs> the unmanned civilian airship, the only oh, f- thing in the world bigger than Taylor Swift, several <laughs> freight trains worth of spy equipment. Uh, yes, well, I'll cherish the memories. It, it, it won't be because um, there still are folks on Capitol Hill who want the administration to release more information about what happened. And I think that's going to show up in um, some legislation. So they try and attach it to some legislation. And so, so I, again, it's not something that will be out of the news. It will come back at some point. And if the Biden administration does ultimately have to release uh, more of the findings, what they, what, what was, what the balloon was doing, what they found on it, then it'll be back in the news cycle. But for now yes. we can just, we can just celebrate that a year on, uh, <laughs> The balloon's gone. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I just I hate that damn balloon. There's nothing left to say. We've all said <laughs> plenty about the balloon. The only reason I even know that this is the anniversary is because Politico yes. EU wrote up a little yeah. spy they're, balloon they're, memories they're, yeah. article. They're trying to watch their newsletter. <laughs> yeah. And they document several inconsistencies with the official narrative that's been put yeah. forth in terms of what exactly was happening. So. Yeah. The adventures with the unmanned civilian airship will continue for eternity. For now, Bill, it is great to see you as always. I hope you have a great weekend. Get out there in the woods with Tashi this afternoon and uh, we'll keep it rolling in the weeks to come. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.